Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. Support also comes from the estate of Margaret Skinner, a longtime friend of WVIK and lover of the arts. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Diego Lasansky, a printmaker and painter from Iowa City whose work has garnered local, national, and international attention, and who has already amassed a large collection of work despite being in his mid-20s. Welcome, Diego. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, your work is primarily figurative, with many of your paintings and prints depending historical figures from the past. Why do you think the human portrait is so endlessly fascinating to us and to you in particular? Well, you know, that's, that is a question that I get a lot. And I always tell just a short story about growing up in a family of artists. And for me, when I was a young kid and not necessarily interested in creating my own art, but interested in art, I was around a lot of family members and they were all... Um, creating art at a very high level, but very interested in the figure. And I really felt they were using the figure in different ways. But if you looked at all of their work as a whole, the, the repeating image was something with a human figure in it. And mm-hmm. so for me, once I started to become interested in art and, you know, got this sort of a fire was lit under me, essentially, um, I felt like, art to me was the human figure. And so that's where I started, still am. And um, there's something about drawing a human figure and especially sort of where I am now drawing a human figure that is either life size or larger than life size, you can sort of walk in and out of the piece. And um, you're sort of with the piece in a way when you're working on it. And so um, I feel like, uh, it's it's the most impactful and um, right now for me is the most interesting um, mm-hmm. form of art. Mm-hmm. Well, when I look at your work, I, I feel the wisdom of an older person that, you know, the faces are so complex and so detailed. You know, many of your prints look like old master's works in a way, but with a thoroughly modern twist. Tell us about the development of your personal style. You know, it was interesting because when I was a young kid, um, I quickly, and I think this is the case for many, many young artists, they want to quickly jump in and start creating art with their touch. And um, one of the ways that I was sort of trained by family members was uh, to throw all of that out and to learn art from an academic point of view, meaning if you want to learn how to draw, you need to learn how to draw what you see, not draw what you think you see. And so um, for me, a lot of my early years of creating art, um, I really, and it's not that I wasn't allowed, but I really was trying hard not to put any type of a style onto it. I was trying to just draw what I saw and um, from there start to think about how could I change forms or change things to sort of um, draw how I want to see things maybe is a better way of saying it. And so um, a lot of the time, I feel like it's important for an early artist to sort of let their own voice or or their own gut sort of speak for themselves and not try to force it out. I think this is especially the case with me and a lot of artists. Um, you copy people. I mean, you copy people 
um, for the first five years. Some people copy people for a long time because it's hard for you to like your style. And um, I've listened to a couple artists talk about it and really feel like they might explain it in a different way. Um, but it's really the roots are the same, which is it's hard for you to in, think your style is good. And early on, you want to be copying old masters and things. And so for me, with my prints now, um, that development is sort of the same that's coming through my drawings. Um, you mentioned that my prints then um, feel like they might have a little bit of an old master feeling. And right now with my work, I'm very interested in still looking at real technique and ancient technique within this type of intaglio printmaking and trying to figure out how can I now evolve that, be creative and invent new ways of using this technique, but still having the foundation in each one of my prints of that historic technique of intaglio printmaking. And so um, the imagery, you know, is somewhat rooted in history, but I, I do feel like it has a little bit more of a contemporary feel spatially and um, colors maybe. Mm -hmm. Oh, it definitely does. I found this quote from the sculptor Rodin where he said, I invent nothing, I rediscover. And that really is a nod to the past. You can, you, you make it your own, but good artists do understand what's come before us, you know, the historical precedent. And you've, you've mentioned intaglio printmaking. So so let's talk about that because that's an enormously complicated technique, but one that you are so good at. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So without visuals, it's always slightly more difficult, but there's essentially three or four different types of printmaking. And you have to sort of look at them as they come along in the commercial world, because most printmaking was not meant to be fine art originally. It was meant to print newspapers or print books or, or whatever it was within the commercial side. So um, intaglio printmaking is quite old, 300 plus years old, and it was, it's, it's essentially called metal plate printmaking. And the reason you can use such a general term like that is most other printmakings are using wood or stone. Now, today, there's a lot of mixing of media, and it's a little harder to, to just use that general term. But for now, we'll use the term metal plate printmaking or intaglio. And essentially, what it is, is um, you're taking a metal plate and you're incising that metal plate with quite a handful of tools. And in fact, I like to say within intaglio, there are a lot of subgenres. You have etching, engraving, dry point. There are a lot of these different subgenres that have come with their own tools and their own mark. And so uh, we'll dive into etching then within intaglio because I think for the majority of listeners, uh, etching would be the most uh, famous. And so Etching then is when you're taking a metal plate and now with etching most of the time you're using copper that is because the acids that were traditionally used were a mixture that were made um, for copper. Now, copper has a lot of qualities that are attractive within this type of printmaking, one of them being that it's a very soft and malleable surface and so you're taking your copper plate within this etching then, and you have a different 
you have a lot of different um, grounds that you can use. And these grounds, simply they're resists that as they're painted onto the copper plate, they are resisting areas as that copper plate is seeing acid. And so as I'm developing an image, um, you know, let's say I want to do a red background. I will paint a resist all over the image except the, the background. I will leave the copper exposed, um, often lay something down into that copper so that then when I lay the plate on into acid, and as that acid is eating away at the copper, it's eating away not as a flat layer, but as a surface. And, and within printmaking, you always want surfaces. You want toothy surfaces, you want lines, you want something so that the next step would be applying the ink. The ink has somewhere to grab onto. That's etching. Now, if you get etching figured out in terms of how it works, then when you dive into something like engraving, which realistically everyone should know that engraving is how money is made. And um, it's made with copper and 50, 60 years ago, it was actually using this carving tool on copper. I'm sure quite a high powered magnifier and um, you are engraving. And within intaglio printmaking, engraving is the most stable tool. And what I mean by that is, if you're wanting to print a thousand or 5,000 copies, engraving is the only mark you can make on copper to which you could get more than about 500 prints. And every time you're printing, you're sort of abrading the surface, you're wearing it down. And so the carving tool is what takes out the most copper. So that's really why artists make more limited editions because the subsequent prints lose that finesse, that precision, yes. I guess, of the earlier ones. That really is true. And it's hard for a lot of early collectors to sort of grasp that. The, the addition, you know, in a way is nice for a collector because, you know, it's one of 50 or one of 100 prints. But realistically, um, with a lot of my prints, and this is the same with a lot of people who are using traditional methods, um, you are very limited by the type of um, addition you can have. And that is all being done with, you know, am I engraving? Well, then maybe I could do a larger edition. Or if I am doing a lot of etching, you know, it's a hundred and that's pretty much my max. And the reason is for these things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you look at a lot of old masters and you're seeing editions of a hundred or 150, but then you're seeing second, third, fourth, fifth editions. And within those second or third editions, and if you know what to look for, that etching, it's going to wear. And, and really all it's doing is if you have a middle gray tone, it's going to be wearing down to almost a faint white by the time you're on that second, third edition. When I first met you, you were in the process of printing uh, one of your Martin Luther uh, prints. And that itself has an interesting story um, suggested by your grandmother. Can you tell us about that? So around 2013-14, I was um, working on a print, my first real print that I edition called Portrait at 18. And it was sort of a um, look at printmaking from a very um, contemporary point of view. And um, I'll just dive quickly through that. Um, the the self-portrait was editioned with unique working states. And um, 
traditionally you would do working states as you're developing an image, but once you've gotten your um, plates figured out and your colors figured out, in addition would come that if you looked at number one or 25 or 50, they would look pretty much identical. Um, and so with my portrait at 18, I had not done that. I had done an addition, number one, number four, number 20, where they were all different. Um, and that was sort of where I was at with the, the genre at the time of printmaking. And then as, you know, the 2013 were coming around, I was finishing this first print, Portrait at 18, and trying to figure out an image that would work to make a new print. And often, um, I'm always drawing and painting, but um, very rarely does an image speak to me that would work well for a print. And um, the reason is a lot of my prints take more than, you know, couple months. And so I like to come up with an image that isn't complete or more so a better way of saying it, that I could develop this image for a year and, and still be creatively stimulated by the image. And so um, often when I start an image, and this is the case with the Martin Luther piece, um, I started with just a very rough drawing that had a lot of things still up in the air about it. I wasn't extremely happy with it. Um, and um, I had done this drawing and finished it for what it was, but thought, you know, this imagery could really be interesting to explore in the printmaking genre now. Um, and um, my, my mother's family grew up very, um, very Lutheran. And so there was a lot of religious um, sort of uh, not genetics, but a lot of heritage there. And so um, I sort of thought exploring that could be interesting. And um, my grandmother is very, my mom's mother is very um, knowledgeable on the subject. And so I was picking her brain a little bit with the Martin Luther um, ideas. And she had um, explained to me that Martin Luther in 1520 was kidnapped and put in the Warburg Castle. And uh, he wrote his 95 theses at the end of the teens of 15, like 18 or 19. And Leo X, the Pope of the time, had put a bounty on his head because, um, of course, he was going against the Catholic Church. And so um, one of the electors, um, Frederick the Wise, liked Martin Luther's ideas a lot and thought um, he couldn't publicly state that, but he would have Martin Luther kidnapped and put in a safe spot so that he would not be executed by the Pope. And so um, Martin Luther was put in the Warburg Castle for two years and took on a disguise, Junker Jorg. I think that sort of translates loosely to Knight George. And he was wearing gesture costumes and um, grew a beard for the first and only time in his life. So this was a lot of knowledge that, um, and a lot of information that I thought I could really develop an interesting intaglio print with this. And so um, that dove, that was a way for me to just dive in head first with this print. Um, and I really wanted to, on my second print, approach it in a very classical sense, um, meaning the edition would all be the same. And so um, the print was developed for about a year and a half. And throughout that early development process, where I was sort of morphing this image of Martin Luther into Yonker York, I was approached by a college here in Iowa, um, 
Warburg College, and it's located in Waverly, Iowa. And um, one of a large, a big donor for that college has been giving for the last 10 years a large body of my grandfather's work to the school. And so my family had sort of a, had a loose connection with with this college anyway. Um, and we were having um, the president and some of his staff come to um, our gallery and my studio for the weekend um, throughout this period of which I was developing a print of Martin Luther. And he instantly fell in love with the idea of the print. And later on, then I was approached, reapproached by him, in which he said, in 2017, um, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is happening. And our college is associated with close to 50 colleges around the world. And we, like a lot of the other colleges, put together a gift that we send out to all 50 colleges. And um, typically the other colleges are reciprocating that. And it can be anything from a banner that hangs into the, in the gym, to a t-shirt, to a poster, to a coffee mug. And so um, he said, we would like you to do a high quality poster of your Martin Luther print when it's done. Um, for the colleges. And um, quickly, I stepped back and said, well, coming from a family of printmakers, this, this is something that we, we stay sort of away from. Because still, I think today there is quite a confusion between a handmade print and sort of this mechanical um, print that is a printer thing that we think of today, not sort of, that doesn't have this year-long process of hand. So I said, why don't I make a special edition for this, this project. And um, that would mean that I could send out original pieces to all of the different schools and universities. And so um, I put together, once the print was completed, an edition called an HC edition. Um, and that stands for Ors Commerce Edition. And um, that's an edition that is a pretty classic edition that comes from the 18th, 19th century. Um, in which it's an edition meant for the public, meant for the commerce. And so um, I thought that would be quite a fun way for Martin Luther to get out there in a way. And so um, I gifted 50 of the prints, um, all numbered to the school, and then they happily sent them to all of the different schools. And mm -hmm. today, um, Martin Luther or Junker Jorg hangs my print in the Warburg Castle where he was hiding. So that was sort of a neat end to the story. Oh, it is. Um, and, you know, I didn't realize the connection between Warburg Castle where where Martin Luther went into hiding for his protection because he was so much of a threat to the Catholic Church yes, in Warburg yes. College here in Iowa. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize that's probably the origin of that name. Yeah, and I began to learn there are a lot of Warburg Colleges around. It's really also interesting. You know, you're, you're part of an artistic family dynasty, if you will. I don't know what you think of that term. but um, And your grandfather was the claimed printmaker Mauricio Lasansky. And one of your uncles, Tomas Lasansky, is an important printmaker as well. What was it like for you growing up surrounded by the arts in that incredibly creative environment? Well, I have to start a little further back um, for you. My grandfather's dad and oldest brother, so my great-grandparents, um, came to the United States from Lithuania. And they came in 1908. They were both artists, but were not supporting themselves as artists. And so they came to the United States to 
the engravers for the U.S. Mint. And um, they engraved here in this country for um, a couple years and decided, you know, they had moved into sort of a ghetto in um, Boston and quickly decided Argentina was the land of opportunity. And so they then moved from Boston to Argentina. And my then my grandfather, Mauricio, being born in Argentina, he grew up with several siblings that were also artists. Um, and so the, the line of artists goes a lot further past my grandfather. Now he has made probably the largest name in my family um, for printmaking. And, um, you know, growing up in a family of artists is really interesting because you know, you go to your grandparents and you're not playing cards with them or having, you know, a nice brunch. You're going down as my grandfather's actively working in the studio. And you're told if you sit in this chair and don't ask any questions, you can watch him work all day. Um, now, the difference between... <laughs> Is that even possible for a child? Well, well, the difference between the way that they spoke of my grandfather, all of my dad's siblings had such tremendous respect for my grandfather my grandfather was so great with children. And my brother and I both remember stories quite vividly of going into the studio and he would stop what he was working on. He would sit in the chair and he would let us make drawings and then he would let us collage our drawings into his pieces. And so we had so much fun being around him. My brother was just a little bit older than me so could take on sort of more fun projects, I always thought. And he um, carved a lot of stamps with my grandfather out of linoleum and then they would stamp onto his pieces. And so I, we both had so much fun being around it. For me, um, being an artist was fun. That was as simple as it was. It was a fun life. And so um, then of course, as I, grew older and became eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, my uncle was the same way. My uncle lives here in Iowa City and has quite a large studio. And him and his wife Ch and Charlie are both artists. And I really liked going over there because it was fun. They were always working on projects, whether it was um, something within their art or a project within the studio, building a table or building something. And so um, just being in that environment, I wanted to. It wasn't that I was even necessarily interested in creating art myself, but I just loved being around it. And so from about age eight or nine, every weekend, every day after school, I would go spend time with my uncle and aunt. And um, after a couple of years of doing that, I quickly realized, okay, I want to create some art myself. I don't want to, I don't want to just create other people's art. And so um, right around 12 to 13, as I was entering um, junior high, they started to get live models for me. And um, I was sort of trained to draw from an academic standpoint. To, in the early years, you're not trying to creatively draw something. You're not trying to um, come up with your own idea. You need to learn the tools so that as you go through and have a life of an artist and go through and have a career as being an artist, you have every tool possible in your toolbox to draw from. And so, um, you know, the it's funny because a lot of people, when I first meet them, they say, I always wanted to be an artist, but I don't have any drawing capability or, um, you know, whatever it is. And I really felt like for me and 
I, I quickly realized for every family member I have, it didn't come naturally. There was a lot of perseverance and a lot of hard work. And um, now granted, we had professionals that were training us. And so we were given sort of the perfect tools to practice. And so um, every time we were sort of improving, it was at quite a fast rate because we were having these professionals train us. But it is hard work. And I really do feel like today, and I think I will always feel like this, anyone can be an artist, anyone can draw, anyone can paint. It just, it takes the right mindset, a lot of hard work, and um, it will pay off. And I remember as a young kid, my grandfather always said, some people just naturally have a little bit more talent than others, but everybody who's an artist can make a masterpiece if they work. <laughs> and I always felt like that was so, that really moved me that um, if, ev if everybody puts the time and everybody can come up with a masterpiece. And I thought, you know, that that was important. It is important. And, you know, you were so fortunate to be surrounded by your grandfather and then your uncle. And, you know, with this apprenticeship, almost, if you will, with your uncle, besides learning technical skills, he also taught you important like building skills, if you will, like how to manage a studio space. You know, it was interesting because after working with him for about 10 years, I enrolled at the university here in, in Iowa. And um, one of the things I quickly learned was there's still quite a lot of things being taught in the art school, a lot of really amazing things being taught um, about artwork and creating art. But what I quickly learned that isn't taught really in any university is, well, there's a lot more to creating art if you're going to be an artist, right? Every day, you don't have time to create art. There are days where you are managing clients or meeting with new clients, or there are days where you're framing and sending to shows. And so I quickly learned that I was so fortunate to grow up in a family of artists since I decided to become an artist because I learned everything but making art as well. Sort of, I classify as the business side, right, of it. And so um, it was very interesting for me to see, um, you know, if you're learning art, it can be a lot scarier to, to take on and, and sell work for a living because a lot of those business side things aren't really taught. Um, and so um, that was something that quickly I realized I needed to absorb if I wanted to, to decide to become a, um, a self-sufficient artist. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk uh, briefly about some of your current projects. What are you working on now? Yeah, so right now I am finishing up an edition of, of a print that's titled Study of Rembrandt. And it's, a, it's sort of a portrait of the artist Rembrandt um, in which he is disguised by some of the different things that he might have painted portraits of people in, whether it's sort of that classic rough um, that you would see around people's neck, um, or it's a, a bonnet that, that might come from that period. And so I've had a lot of fun um, working on this print of Rembrandt, partially because Rembrandt was always known as, a, as an, a printmaker as well as a painter. But at the time, if you solely called yourself a printmaker, you would not simply be held to the same importance level as you would if you were a painter. And so um, um, I was always also very drawn to Rembrandt's etchings and engravings. And so I thought it would be quite fun and intriguing to make 
now a portrait of Rembrandt in which I'm using some of those techniques. And so um, I'm currently additioning that print right now to 50 as well. Mm -hmm. Most of the creative side is done. Mm -hmm. um, but then in the other half of the studio, the drawing and painting half, I'm working on a series of samurai drawings that will end up being a group of about 16 drawings. And, uh, and, the, and these, are the, all... these are Japanese samurai soldiers. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And they're all right around uh, four feet by eight feet. Um, and they're all done on paper. And originally I was calling them drawings, but now I'm starting to call them mixed media because they are, they have quite a heavy um, uh, importance of paint and ink on them more so now than, than pencil. And this will sort of be a look at the same, look at uh, an overall look at what it was like to be a samurai. Mm -hmm. And, um, Right now, I'm working on the first group of four. There'll, there will be four groups of board drawings within the series in which um, they're all sort of different aspects of a samurai. And so right now, the first group of four is samurai in which they're wearing their informal wear or the clothing they would wear when they're not wearing the armor. And so um, I'm sort of now looking into, um, you know, what are the different helmets? What are the different um, family crests or patterns that they might be wearing and diving into how can I replicate the fine detail you often see in a lot of the Japanese clothing or um, samurai clothing within my pieces. I felt like if I wanted to take on this, this um, project, I needed to be able to keep the level of detail to the same quality as the the actual things the samurai wore and and so have come up with different methods of using watercolor and paint so that i can now repaint um those those detailed clothings and so i'm quickly now after about a year and a half concluding the first four drawings of the series and we'll dive into the next four which will be samurai wearing armor um, and I'm hoping that that will be a little bit less tedious of a, of a, you know, sub sub project to work on. But um, the more and more I've been researching the, the armor, the more intricate I've realized it is. It's so interesting your, how you combine your artistic skill with this real deep interest in history. It's like, it's a perfect fusion, I think. And these are so large and, and very impressive. And I, I hope that we can see them all together sometime because 16 of these would be amazing to see all together in, in their entirety. I, I had a collector come by a couple months ago and he walked in and he said, so you're creating your own army. <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels like that. Well, Diego Lasansky, thank you so much for talking today. You really have an extraordinary talent, and I can't wait to see what you continue to produce and, and what will certainly be a long and productive career. Well, thank you very much for asking me. It was fun. Of course. Diego Lasansky's work can be viewed on his website, diegolasansky.com. Take time to check out the two short films posted there under the tab entitled Watch, where you can see Diego at work making his Martin Luther Prince and the studio where his grandfather's work is displayed. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities, for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.